the king of Israel at this particular moment, a man named Ahab. And Ahab is a figure who desires to see Israel move away from the God that they traditionally have worshipped and move towards the worship of a God called Baal, or Baal, if you want to actually pronounce it correctly. I was doing that this week because I've said it five different ways. Um, and so that is sort of his desire, his vision for Israel. And then the other figure that is sort of prominent that we talked about last week is a man named Elijah, who's a prophet. He's been raised up by God to sort of lead the resistance against this idolatry. And Elijah has sort of spoken this word to Israel, and specifically to Ahab, and said, if you want to worship the rain god, it's not going to rain uh, until the one true God says that it will. And so after he speaks this harsh word to the king of Israel, Ahab, the Lord sends him out into the wilderness. He becomes in many ways a second Israel, uh, driven out of the new Egypt and into the wild. And he moves from the wilderness to a foreign nation called Zarephath. And that's where he spends a good deal of time. Uh, Now, these two figures that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, Elijah and Ahab, they represent radical visions, radically different visions for the future of this country. Uh, the, The conflict between these two men and the two sort of ideas and gods that they represent is a battle for the soul of the nation of Israel. Ahab wants to see the exodus undone in many ways. And you see this when he becomes king, he builds temples to foreign gods. Uh, It looks as though child sacrifice begins to be practiced again in the land that Israel entered into. And this was one of the reasons why God drove the previous inhabitants out. He rebuilds the city of Jericho. He's trying to undo everything God has done. And then Elijah's desire is to see Israel remain faithful to the God that brought them out of the land of Egypt. And so you have this conflict that's been looming for a couple weeks for us, a couple years for them. And at long last, these two sort of titanic figures meet in our text this evening. Now, um, there are areas within which we can disagree in, in your average society, and there are little to no consequences for us having differences of opinion. So, uh, for example, you can agree with me that Taco Bell french fries are a means of grace and a gift from God, or you can be wrong, but nothing is going to happen to you just because you don't hold that opinion. There's no consequence for our national life. Our nation is not going to crumble just because you don't like Taco Bell fries, right? There are all sorts of things like that where we can, we can legitimately have a difference of opinion and we can celebrate those differences of opinion and, and there are no consequences for it, at least on a grand cosmic national scale. Uh, this is not such an issue in the life of Israel. Now, the question of which God will this nation serve is a matter of life and death. Uh, it's a matter of will this nation continue to exist or will they cease to be? It's a matter of will this nation that God has called out of the nations of the world to be a blessing, will it become just like the other nations of the world and become a curse? And so that is what lies behind our text for the evening in 1 Kings chapter 18. We'll be in all of it, but we won't go verse by verse through all of it because there's a lot there. So let's just begin here in verses 1 through to 6. And let me read this for us. Would you hear the word of the Lord with me? After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the year, in the third year, saying, Go, show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain upon the earth. And so Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab and Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly, and when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and fed them with bread and water. 
Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all of the springs of water and to all the valleys. Perhaps we may find grass and save the horses and the mules and keep them alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went one direction by himself and Obadiah went in the other direction. And as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him and fell on his face and said, Is it you, my lord Elijah? He answered him, It is I. Go, tell your lord. Behold, Elijah is here. So, it would seem that that a significant amount of time has passed between the end of chapter 17 and the beginning of chapter 18. Obviously, there's not chapters in this when it's originally written, but, but here's what we're cued in on. After many days, the word of God comes to Elijah. And he says, in the third year of this famine, go back to Israel. Now, there's a whole lot there that I don't have time to spend um, unpacking. But, but let me just say this. Israel has experienced the death of famine and drought for three years, and now Elijah comes to bring rain and new life. That should sound familiar to you. Um, we'll talk about it later. But when God calls Elijah, he leaves this nation that he's in to go back to Israel to confront Ahab, and he runs into this figure that we haven't met before. It's a man named Obadiah. We've met Ahab. Uh, We know a little bit about his wife Jezebel. We know a good bit about Elijah. But we don't know anything about Obadiah. And and what the author of 1 Kings tells us uh, are the following things. One, Obadiah works in the palace. He's in charge of the house of Ahab. So he's sort of like uh, the head butler, the manager of sort of household affairs. Uh, Two, we're told that Obadiah fears the Lord. And three, we're told that he helps to hide and protect the prophets of Yahweh when Jezebel has them executed or cut off, as the text would say. I don't want to spend all of our time talking about Obadiah, but I do think that Obadiah offers us a window into the other side of what it looks like to be called, like God, called by God towards a particular end. Um, so the, the name of this ministry, if you haven't seen on our handy-dandy hoodies and t-shirts and logos in the back is it's a college and career ministry. Now, there's two reasons for that. One of them is that I'm really bad at naming stuff. And so for me, you, you just call something what it is, and that's good enough. So, great example. In November, we're going to start a series through the Gospel of John. Guess what that's going to be called? John. John. Yeah. If I really want to get, like, creative, it may be called the Gospel According to John. Maybe I'll even throw in St. John if I'm feeling particularly creative. Um, Generally speaking, I'm not good at naming stuff. So why is this called the college and career ministry? Because it's for people who are in college and starting their careers. But it does in some ways encapsulate these two particular groups of people that that we're hoping that this ministry is helping to navigate uh, these particular windows of life. Uh, There is college, all the questions that come uh, when you enter into a university setting. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to uh, believe that Christianity is true in light of all of the, the ideas that I'm encountering in, on my college campus and in the classroom? What does it look like to ask these questions and wrestle through these things? And I hope this is a place where if you are there in that position, uh, that we can help you think through those issues. But I also recognize that coming out of college, there's a whole different season of life where you step into a career. Uh, you're not established in that career yet, but you're beginning this new phase of life, and that comes with a whole different set of questions. Like, what does it look like to, to do my job to the glory of God? Uh, what does it look like to serve Jesus faithfully when I'm working in a technically secular vocation? 
What does it look like to be a nurse to the glory of God, to be a mechanic to the glory of God, to be a truck driver to the glory of God? What does it look like to be in the service industry to the glory of God? How do I serve God in this particular window of life? And in Christian circles, one of the things that I, I want to push back very strongly against is that there's this, this sensibility that people have, which is, sure, I mean, you can serve God if you're Tim Tebow and you play football and dedicate every touchdown to the Trinity. Um, or sure, you can maybe serve God if you uh, are a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, especially if you put crosses on the signs for your law firm. Uh, but re- if you really want to serve God, like the real way to serve God is if you're going to be a pastor or a missionary. Like, like there's other ways to serve God. Sure, you can serve God in your vocation, but if you really, really, really want to serve God, that's the best way to do it. And I, I understand what, what we mean when we say things like this. I understand that there is a good and right desire to um, see people trained up to encourage the church uh, and to go to the nations and share the gospel. Uh, But if this is the only conception we have of what it means to serve God faithfully, then we're not reading the whole Bible. Um, You might recall last week we talked about Elijah. Elijah is this prophet who's called by God to go to a foreign nation that worships foreign gods to carry the truth of the one true God to this nation. He is in, in many senses functioning as a missionary. But at the beginning of chapter 18 you encounter a man named Obadiah. Obadiah never leaves Israel. Obadiah never quits his job. Obadiah continues working in the king's palace. And what does the text say about him? He feared the Lord. It doesn't say he wasn't as devout as Elijah. It says he feared the Lord. This is what I'm getting at here. Um, For those of you who who don't feel called to a particular sort of um, vocational form of ministry, Uh, So maybe you feel as though God wants you to be an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or a mechanic or an artist or a teacher. Um, You are not called to a lesser form of service. Your work matters. It carries profound and significant spiritual weight. God calls some to be Elijah's and to go. He calls others to be Obadiah's and stay and fear the Lord right where they are in their quote-unquote secular jobs. But Obadiah does not operate in his job the way that somebody who doesn't fear the Lord would. And this is the distinction. Um, When Jezebel decides to kill the prophets of Yahweh, to cut them off, as the text would say, he hides them and he protects them. So what we see here is somebody working in a sort of non-Christian job, working in the average sort of field of uh, vocation, but he's functioning differently. Like, his fear of the Lord causes him to be a different sort of household manager. And this is where life gets really difficult, uh, because we have to ask tough questions. What does it look like to be a nurse to the, to the glory of God? Like, what does it look like for me to be in um, a public health field and let my fear of the Lord affect the way that I do my job? I don't know that I have all the answers to that. But I think that we need to ask the questions. What does it look like to work in the field where I am to the glory of God? What does it look like to fear the Lord here as Obadiah fears the Lord even as he serves in the palace of Ahab? So Obadiah encounters Elijah. Um, And there's this really interesting sort of back and forth that happens that I won't uh, walk through exhaustively. Basically, Obadiah uh, knows who Elijah is, and Elijah says, hey, go tell Ahab that I'm here. 
And Obadiah, I guess, has heard that Elijah has a reputation for being fairly hard to pin down. And so he says, listen, if I tell Ahab that you're here, and then I come back and you're not here, he's going to kill me. Uh, So I don't really know that I want to tell him you're here because you just keep disappearing on people and you're going to get me killed. And Elijah's like, nope, I'll stick around. I promise you're not going to die. And so he goes, he tells Ahab, and he brings Ahab back. And in verse 17, we see this. Ahab saw Elijah, and Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, your father's house and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent, at all, sent to all the people of Israel. He gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different options? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer even a word. So, the beginning of the confrontation takes place. Probably somewhere in the middle of a field, Elijah meets with Ahab for the first time in three years as drought has ravaged the nation of Israel. And Elijah says to Ahab, I I have a proposed solution to our conflict. You gather all the people of Israel, you meet me at Mount Carmel, and we'll settle once and for all who the one true God is. And so the people gather. I don't know how many people this is. I don't know if they're like maybe at the foot of the mountain, looking to the top of the mountain, I would venture to say there's an awful lot of people who are witnessing this showdown. But before anything happens, even before he lays out his plan for how they're going to settle this dispute, Elijah turns and he, and he talks to the people. And he makes this comment to the people of Israel, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord's God, follow him. If it's Baal, then follow him. But the people did not answer him. So what it seems is happening in Israel, maybe not in Ahab's house, but in Israel, what it seems is happening is that they haven't totally gotten rid of worshiping the God of Israel. They've just set him up alongside a number of other gods, Asherah, Baal, and who knows what other deities. They're not willing to totally let go of this God that they used to worship, but they're not willing to worship him alone. They are, in some ways, utterly paralyzed by the reality of having to make a choice. They're crippled by the weight of having to make a decision. And so what they do instead is say, I just won't choose. I'll keep going back and forth between all of these gods in the case that maybe one of them is actually the one true God. You know, it's, it's interesting because it seems to me like at some point or another in our life, all of us become Israel in this moment. Um, I, I don't know that it, it sets in on us when we're young, uh, but the older we get, I think the, the more we realize that to choose one thing is to exclude another. Uh, To make a decision is to in some way also endure a death of the option that you've left behind. So you choose to go to one college, and that means you can't go to another college. Uh, You choose to leave behind one city to move to a different city. Every choice excludes something else. And so for many of us, the thought of having to choose paralyzes us, and so we do what Israel did. We choose nothing. We choose not to choose. Somebody once asked Marilyn Monroe um, what she believed, and I think they were asking her in sort of a spiritual sense, what do you believe about um, a God and life and death and, and existence and things like that? And she said, I believe a little bit of everything. I don't know that Marilyn Monroe understands that 
a little bit of everything contradicts itself. But, but she had in, in sort of her statement this way of encapsulating what so many of us do. We choose not to choose for fear that in choosing we will miss out on something. And I don't know where people are here tonight, but I would venture to say that there's, there's some of us who've been in this ministry or in this church or in a church for days, weeks, months, years. And there's some sense in which you think to yourself, yeah, Christianity may be true, maybe Jesus is who he said he is, maybe the claims of the gospel are, are worthy of my trust, but I'm not totally sure. I, I, I'm still on the fence about these issues. Um, first of all, let me say I'm glad you're here. Uh, let me also say I am happy to walk through those questions with you. Uh, we are happy to wrestle with you through issues that, that are complicated. I don't expect you to make a decision about Christianity in an instant. But do know that you will never be whole when your loves are divided. And do know that there will come a point where you do have to make a choice. And that point has come for Israel. You've gone back and forth long enough. You've limped back and forth between two different gods long enough. It's time for you to choose which God you're going to serve. So, Elijah proposes this. He says in verse 22 to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood. But put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. You call upon the name of your God, I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. All the people answered, it is well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull, prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. So, they took the bull that was given to them, they prepared it, and they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. So, uh, what's interesting to me here is that Elijah kind of lays out, here's the test. Here's how we're going to figure out whose God is real. We're going to build two altars. We're going to set them both up. We're going to put a sacrifice on both of the altars. And then we're going to cry out to our God, and whichever one consumes the altar with fire, that's the one true God. That's sort of the, the prospect that he lays before them. And everybody says, that sounds like a pretty good idea to me. That sounds fairly reasonable. Sounds fairly agree agreeable. But here's what's, what's so interesting to me about this. You see throughout verse, uh, chapter 16 and 17 and 18 uh, how devoted Elijah is to, to the God of Israel. How desperately he wants the people of Israel to return to the one true God. He is passionate about that. And yet he still says to the prophets of Baal, take your best shot. Like, it, it would be easy enough for him to show up and be like, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to build an altar, fire's going to fall on it, and then you're going to know that you're wrong. But he doesn't do that. He realizes that they're moving back and forth between these two choices, and he says, you will have the opportunity to make your case for your God, and we'll see which God is real. That, to me, that shows that, that Elijah's confidence in the God that he serves runs much deeper uh, than, than many of our own confidences might run. Um, I went from elementary school, preschool, all the way to like sixth grade going to a private school. Um, and I, I grew up in a Christian home, so I really didn't know people who weren't Christians until I went to middle school. And I went to 
a really intense middle school. And so I encountered people who were not Christians in a very real and tangible way. Um, and the first time that, that I started having conversations with people who weren't Christians, uh, especially when I was with friends who were Christians, there was this fear in my like middle school heart where I was like terrified that they would say something that would convince my friends to not be Christians. And so there was this sort of like this urge to shout them down or cut them off or not let them talk because I was afraid that they would say something that would convince somebody that I cared about to believe something wrong. There was this deep-seated middle school insecurity about everything in my life, but especially in this area. I mentioned that this is a college and career ministry. I've talked about the career portion, but this is also a college ministry, which means that some of you are going to universities right now. And if you're in any of the humanitarian degrees, so whether you're studying art, whether you're studying history, philosophy, religion, uh, one of the required classes for you is Introduction to Religious Studies. And one of my favorite things is when somebody says, hey, Travis, I'm taking Intro to Religious Studies. I love that. And, and normally, what, I, I say two things when somebody tells me that. Um, one, I say, whatever question that you might have, I am happy to talk about it. There's nothing you're going to hear in your classes that scares me uh, or makes me afraid uh, or insecure in my faith. So my door is open if you want to stop by and ask me any questions. And then the second thing that I, that I normally say, at least if I'm um, remembering to say what I've sort of committed to saying, I say, one, ask me any questions that come up. Two, I'm excited for you to take this class. Here's why. Um, in middle school, I was, I was deeply insecure about somebody saying something that would punch holes in what I believed or what other people believed. I'll tell you at this point in my life, I am confident enough in the truth of the gospel that I'm not afraid for you to hear other perspectives. I'm not afraid for you to encounter criticism. I'm not, afra I'm not afraid for you to encounter other ideas because I believe that the gospel can withstand your questions. This is the, the scenario in which Elijah finds himself. Israel is torn. Israel doesn't know what to choose. They're, they're running back and forth between all these different gods, and he says, that's fine. Bring on all your gods. Make your case. See which God answers by fire. I'm not concerned about who's going to come out on top. And I think that that's probably something in that. There's something instructive for the way we should engage with our friends who aren't Christians. That tendency to, to shut them down, to shut them out, uh, to silence them, I want to encourage you to resist that. Uh, hear them well. Pay attention to what they're saying. Listen to their objections. But listen to them in the confidence that the, that the gospel is true. It's big enough to handle those things. So Elijah invites the prophets of Baal to plead with their God to send fire. And so... They take the bull given to them, and they prepare it and call upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, no one answered, and they limped around the altar that they had made. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. Then they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their customs with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So what you see here is Elijah inviting the prophets of Baal to make their case. And their case starts to fall flat. And then Elijah's a little bit sarcastic. 
Um, and then they get more frenzied. They, they start doing this thing that was common in the ancient world where they start cutting themselves. It's called uh, bloodletting. Um, there's this sense in the ancient world that there's particular mystical power in blood, and so if you really want the gods to pay attention to you, you better start cutting yourself or, or letting some sort of blood, whether it's the form of a sacrifice, human or animal, that's how you get the gods to hear you. But Baal still doesn't hear them. Nothing happens. There's no voice. There's no fire. And so it comes down to Elijah in verse 30. He says to the people, come near to me, and the people came near to him. He repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down, and Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. He made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. He put the wood in order, he cut the bull into pieces and laid it on the wood. And then he said, fill four jars with water, pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. He did it a second time, and then he said, do it a third time. He did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also. At the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant, that I have done all these things to your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, the Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. The fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood and the stones and the dust. And when all the people saw, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. So, Elijah proposes this test. We're all going to climb to the top of this mountain. We're going to lay out two altars and two offerings. You can make your best case for your God, and we'll see which God answers by fire. The, the prophets of Baal spend all day. They go to incredible extremes in the hopes that their God will hear, but there's nothing. Elijah builds the altar out of 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel, then he has the altar drenched in water. Uh, so now, not only is it going to take fire to, to consume the sacrifice, it's going it's to require more fire. Like, I don't know if you've ever tried to, to light wet, damp wood or underbrush on fire. It's way more difficult. But it's interesting that the water that's poured onto the sacrifice, it's four jars three times, which is, again, 12 jars of water. And in an instant, as soon as Elijah prays, God reveals himself on the mountain of Carmel to his people in fire. Here's why this is significant. Uh, Lydia read this passage for us from the book of Exodus right before I walked up. 400 years earlier, Israel sits at the foot of a different mountain called Sinai. God is about to reveal himself to his people. And the text that Lydia read says that the presence of God descends like fire. This is the God that met with Israel on the mountain of Sinai, now meeting with Israel on the mountain of Carmel. But here's why this is also significant. Because God meets with his people on a mountain again. A thousand years later, on a mountain called Golgotha, the fire of God's wrath descends on the altar of a cross, and it consumes the sacrifice of Jesus. Mountain after mountain after mountain, God descends in fire and reveals himself. On the mountain of Carmel, the prophets of Baal think that their God will hear them if they shed enough of their own blood. How much can we bleed so that our God will hear us? But on the mountain of Golgotha, 
God says, I'm not asking you for your blood. I've already poured out mine so that you can be heard and forgiven and restored. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, God, we thank you um, that just as you revealed yourself on Mount Carmel to your people, uh, you've shown yourself in such a, a greater and more magnificent way in the cross of Christ. The prophets of Baal thought that it would take their blood to cause their God to hear you. You don't ask that of us, but you offer the blood of Christ in our place. And God, I pray that you would um, convict us where we have walked in a way that doesn't honor the cross of Christ, where we have been forgetful as Israel was forgetful. Convict us, Lord, where we have limped between other gods, unwilling to commit to the gospel, unwilling to commit to your call on our lives. Would you forgive us? Would you restore us? Would you strengthen us and encourage us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.